We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah 17. Rabbi Kiva Omer, Rabbi Kiva says, Tzchok v'kalos rosh, margilim esa adam la'erva. Tzchok, which means laughter or mockery. V'kalos rosh, and, and levity or lightheadedness. Margilin esa adam la'erva. They accustomize a person to licentiousness, to promiscuity. The first idea. Mesores siad la'tora. Mesores means tradition. Of, of Torah, Mesoras or Mesora means the idea of the oral Torah being transmitted from generation to generation. That is a protective fence for the Torah. Masros siag laosher, tithing, giving charity, is a protective fence for wealth. Nidarim siag laprishus, vows are a protective fence for abstinence. And siag lachachma, shtika, a protective fence for wisdom is Silence. So, who was Rabbi Akiva? Just before we dig into the content of the Mishnah, let's talk about Rabbi Akiva, uh, the character, one of the most uh, towering figures in Jewish history. And he's to be the author not only of this Mishnah, Mishnah 17, Mishnah 18, and Mishnah 19 are also the brainchild of Rabbi Akiva. So, we're not going to give his whole story now because that will take a lot, a long time, and we'll try to distribute it over the next couple of Mishnayos. But his basic batch story is that he was the son of converts, and he's always presented as the canonical example of Torah being a great equalizer, because even though he had no background, he, his family wasn't wealthy, his ancestors were essentially Gentiles, and he didn't have a strong Jewish background in learning, yet he became the primary sage of his era and someone who essentially saved the Jewish people in a very critical, crucial time of their history. And of course, we know the story, the the basic bones of the story is that he was an ignoramus until the age of 40. In fact, he didn't even know how to read Hebrew, yet he he went on to become the greatest sage of his time. And he's that vital link. He was that one who studied all the Torah from his predecessors and transmitted that to the next generation after what I call the first Holocaust, which is the period in Jewish history between 60 and 70 years after the temple was destroyed, where the Romans were assassinating rabbis and killing Jews in Judea wholesale. And thousands and thousands of his students, and essentially the students of, of the whole nation, were killed, and there was almost no one left, and Rabbi Kiva is the one who, who saves Torah, so to speak, by being that vital link to push it on to the next generation and to keep the flow of Torah continuous since Moses, since Sinai, until today. In fact, last Mishnah, we learned about Rabbi Yishmael, who was his his spar- sparring partner. We talked about the fact that Rabbi Yishmael had his own academy, and Rabbi Kiva had his academy, and the Talmud tells us, the book of Sanhedrin, that Rabbi Kiva's students, they became the basis of all oral Torah. And in fact, when the oral Torah is written 50 years after Rabbi Kiva passed away, or it started to be, be written, his students and their notes, and essentially his Torah teaching, his formulations, are codified in the Mishnah, for example. The Mishnah is essentially the notes of his student, Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is one of the students of Rabbi Kiva. And he codified his teachings from Rabbi Kiva in his notes, and that was expanded, was elaborated upon, but the basis, the backbone, the, 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 the essence of the Mishnah 
is the notes of Rabbi Meir. And the other books of oral Torah, of the Mishnaic level oral Torah that is, they are the products of the other students of, of Rabbi Kiva. So for example, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he is one of the sages of the Mishnah, but he's also the author of the Zohar. That's the authoritative book, the oral Torah, so to speak, book of, of Kabbalah, of, of the hidden Torah. And then you have the uh, Sifra, the Sifri, the uh, Torah's Koanim, the Mechilta. These are names of other books, uh, the Seder Yom. Uh, these are other books that are, again, of that same era and are authored by the students of Rabbi Tiva. So he's that, he, that, that's his central role. Now, what is really interesting about Rabbi Tiva is the fact that not only was he ignorant for the beginning of his life, he was actually maliciously ignorant. He, 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 he was opposed to Torah. And it's kind of fascinating, I think, from a, from a psychological standpoint, the fact that the people that maybe ha- that have the most, I would say, the most anger, um, or, or the most difficult are the ones that have the most potential. You know, you see, I would say, even from, from children, young age, the ones that are rebellious, you know, the ones that are recalcitrant, the ones who defy authority are the ones that really have power within them. And once they kind of get a grip on their life, they can do tremendous things. And the kids that are obedient are fantastic. The kids that follow the rules are fantastic, but they're not the ones who change the world. That's just, that's just the way it is. And there's kind of this greater upside and greater downside with the people that have, you know, that are a little bit abrasive, maybe even a lot of bit abrasive. They're the ones who really have the potential to do great things. So the Talmud tells a story that Rabbi Kiva told his students. This is after he became a great Torah sage and after he massed thousands of students. And he told them, he says, when I was an Amharetz, when I was an ignoramus, before I immersed myself in Torah, I used to say the following statement. Who's going to give me a Torah scholar? And I will bite him like a donkey. That's what he used to tell, tell the students. I, I, I hated the Torah sages so much, I said, I want one so I could bite them like a donkey. So, of course, the students say, uh, what does that even mean? Who, you bite them like a dog. You don't bite them like a donkey. So he says, no, no, no. The difference is like this. Dogs, they bite, but they don't break the bones. Donkeys, they bite and they break bones. I had such disdain, such anger towards the sages, I wanted to break their bones. And this is Rabbi Kiva himself testifying about himself that that's what his attitudes were before he had this this paradigm shift, this dramatic turnaround. And I think it's interesting for, for us to look at it you know, if Rabbi Kiva was someone who was respectful, I'm respectful of all people. Let's all coexist. If he didn't have that fire within that anger, that tenacity, he wouldn't have become what he became. And he managed to kind of marshal that, that fire that he had within them, direct it towards Torah and become the greatest, the greatest sage of, of, of his entire era. Now, what's also interesting about his backstory is that he was someone that even before he became a great Torah scholar, he had impeccable character. This is one thing that we see about him in the stories that are told in the Talmud about him before he started studying Torah. So, for example, the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 127b, is talking about judging favorably. 
that when someone does something to you or you see someone doing something that could be viewed in two ways. It's ambiguous. Is that guy doing something good or is he doing something bad? You don't know. You have to be a judge. You have to, you're, you're, we're trained, we're told, we're encouraged. Judge other people favorably. Give them benefit of the doubt. Assume that they have noble intentions. Assume what, the, what they're doing is not based on, on, on something malicious, something evil. Maybe there's a, there's a reason why they're behaving in that, in that fashion. Uh, just yesterday on Shabbos, I witnessed someone like that I was not expecting to witness do this, do this thing, driving a car on Shabbos. So what do I do? Now, I, I don't know the person well enough to know if this is out of character, but from what I know, it seems like there's no, re- this person should be sh- Shabbat observant. So as I'm walking to shul yesterday afternoon, I see, I'm pretty sure I see him driving through the neighborhood. It's a very unusual thing. So I don't know the person well enough, but I think according to the Torah, I am required to say, well, maybe the person has a legitimate reason to be driving on Shabbos because maybe there's a health issue or maybe there's a danger. That's what I, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I, I, I don't know, because the, the, the law states that if someone really is consistently evil, you don't judge them favorably. It's only when it's ambiguous enough. But I think I, I, it's ambiguous enough for me to assume that there's some sort of crisis, some sort of emergency that warranted that behavior. That's just what happened to me yesterday. But the Talmud gives a great story about someone who was the archetype, the power, the paragon of judging favorably. This is, again, Shabbos 127b. It tells a story about a farm worker who worked diligently, assiduously, faithfully for their boss for three years. And after three years was uh, completed, they finished their term, and they're, oh, now it's time to get paid. And they're about to go home the day before Yom Kippur to go spend Yom Kippur with the family, to spend Sukkot with their family. They've done their time. They want to get paid. So he goes to the boss and says to him, okay, I'm going home. Three years of work. Pay me. So he says, I'm sorry. I don't have any money. I don't have any cash. No cash. Sorry, I'm out of cash. The, the boss, the owner, the, the owner of the field that he was working on was inordinately rich. He doesn't have any cash. Money's tied up. No problem. Give me fruits. I'll sell the fruits in the marketplace and I'll use the money to show. No problem. I'm sorry. I don't have fruits. And what does he see? As far as I could see, he sees orchards. He sees fields. He sees granaries. He sees everything. Guy doesn't have any fruits. Okay. No problem. No problem. Give me real estate. Give me real property. I'll sell the property and I'll use that to pay for, for my work. No problem. I'm sorry. I don't have any property. This man is the largest landowner in the whole region. Doesn't have any property. He says, okay, no problem. Give me some blankets, some sheets, some linen. I'll sell them. I'll use that to, uh, to finance, to pay for my, to pay for my, my work. I'm sorry. I don't have that. What to do? The man who employed you claims to be bankrupt. What do you do? Okay. He turns around and in disappointment, he just heads home empty handed. And he spends time with his family, and he's there for Yom Kippur, and he's there for Sukkot. And after Sukkot's over, who comes to visit him? His boss. 
And his boss has satchels full of cash to pay him. Not only that, he brings him three animals, three donkeys laden with all kinds of goodies. They make a huge party, a huge celebration, and they're, and they're reminiscing, and they're discussing, and they're talking, and they eat, they drink, he pays them, and then they have a discussion. They start to debrief each other. So the boss tells him, well, when I told you I don't have any cash, what did you suspect? What did you think I, I meant? So the worker responded, I thought perhaps you found a good deal. There was a business deal and you had to use all your cash right away because it was a good opportunity. It was a very, very cheap opportunity that you got and you wanted to jump on it. Okay. And when I told you I don't have any livestock, what did you, what did you expect? He said, well, I thought maybe you lent it out to other people. And when I said, I don't have any property, what did you expect? Well, maybe you gave it to sharecroppers. And when I said, I don't have any fruits, well, what did you expect? I said, well, maybe you didn't tie them. So therefore they're locked up. And when I said, I don't have any blankets and pillows and things like that, what did you expect? I said, well, maybe you decided to make a donation to the temple. And you decided, you know what, I'm giving all my possessions to the temple, to the coffers of the temple. So the boss responded, I swear to you that every single thing that you suspected was actually true. And the reason why I donated all my possessions to the temple is because my son, Hortinus, this is his name, my son, Hortinus, wasn't going in the proper ways of Torah. And I said, you know what? I'm going to dedicate a large gift to the conference of the temple in the merit that they, he goes back on the right on the right path. And then, as we know, when someone makes a vow, there's certain circumstances under which that vow can be undone. So I went to the rabbis and I undid the vow. And now I have the ability to pay you. That's the story. Now what's interesting about this story is that it's presented without context. We don't know who the people are. The only hint we get is the son of the boss whose name is Hortinus. But the name Hortinus is a very important name because there's a famous rabbi whose name is Rabbi Eliezer ben Hortinus. Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Hortinus. And Rashi, right, away, right there in the commentaries, they tell us that these two characters are none other, the boss, none other than the Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus. And the worker is Rabbi Akiva before he became a scholar, when he was a shepherd tending to the fields of others. And this shows us that even before he became a great sage, he had a lot of the goods needed to become a, a, a great Jewish figure because his character was impeccable. His character was sterling. He was already judging people favorably in this, in this over the top fashion. Now, how did he have his, his shift? Like, well, what happened? So we're told several stories in, in the Talmud of the Midrash, uh, several intersecting stories. Uh, one story, maybe the most famous story about Rabbi Hiva is that he was a shepherd. This again, Fits nicely with the story in the Talmud. He was a shepherd working for one of the richest men in Jerusalem, maybe the richest man in Jerusalem. His name was Kalba Savua. And the story goes that Kalba Savua had a daughter who took a liking to Rabbi Hiva. Now, what does that mean? Was he tall and handsome? Maybe. But the Talmud tells us that this daughter, Rachel, daughter of the, 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 the wealthiest man in, in, in Jerusalem, she recognized 
that this shepherd of her dad has tremendous potential. If he would dedicate his, his energy, his focus to Torah study, he'll become one of the, one of the greats. And she says to him, okay, I'll marry you, provided you pledge to go, to go study Torah full time. And he says, okay, we have a deal. And her dad says, over my dead body, you have a deal. I'm not going to let you marry one. You're going to marry someone from a prestigious background, a great Torah style, or not this ignorant shepherd. If you do it, we're done. If you decide to marry him, I'm going to disown you. That's one story that we're told in the Midrash. The second story we're told is that Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd, and he went to take his the flock to give them water by the well. And he noticed something very unusual by the well. There was a, like a perfect cylindrical hole in the rock. And he was very perplexed by that. How does a perfect hole get bored through a rock? Rock's very hard. So he asked the people, what's going on? Like, it's such an unusual thing. And they said to him, oh, look, you see, there's a small little drop of water that's hitting that rock. And over many centuries, the drip drip of that same water in that very same spot eventually weared away at the, at the rock. And of course, every drop is insignificant, but the preponderance over, over many centuries, it eventually penetrated the rock. And the Midrash tells us that Rukiv says, oh, if water which is soft can penetrate the rock which is hard, then Torah which is hard can penetrate my heart which is soft. And then he decided to dedicate himself to Torah study. So again, if we make a mashup of all these teachings in the Talmud of the Midrash, we find that Rabbi Kiva did have this transformation encouraged by his his young wife and by his own decision, his own initiative to decide to dedicate himself towards this pursuit. And the description that we get is that he, he started with nothing. So he went, the way it's described in the Midrash, he went with his young son. He had a young son, it's not clear if this was a son from a previous marriage or this is a son from his new marriage. And they went to, they went to preschool together, essentially. And they, they made a, they had on the board, okay, this is an Aleph. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is an Aleph. Looks like this. And this is a Bet. And the Midrash describes. And he continued studying and studying until he studied everything. And he was the kind of student that teachers hate, would never stop asking questions. But he, kept on studying with such diligence and such fastidiousness, he became the greatest sage of his era, but eventually he was sent to the yeshiva, to the greatest academy, studied by the greatest teachers of his, of, of his time, Rabbi Eliezer, the aforementioned Rabbi Eliezer, uh, Rabbi Yehoshua were his two primary teachers, and uh, the, one other famous story about it is that his wife tells him, okay, go study Torah for 12 years, I'll see you in 12 years. Their marriages, I assume, were... Uh, Structure differently than ours. Try to get uh, people to uh, go study for 12 hours. Good luck with that. But anyhow, he goes for 12 years. He comes back after 12 years. And he overhears a conversation that his wife is having with someone in his house. And the person's telling his wife, your husband is a good for nothing. He abandoned you. You should divorce him. What do you waste your time with him? He left you for 12 years to go study Torah. Nothing will amount to him. And she says, well, if he was here, I'd tell him to go study for another 12 years. So Amtiva hears this and he says, okay. She said it. She turns around and goes back. 
and goes to study for another 12 years and comes back 12 years later. That's the story of the Talmud. It's, it's a big debate. Did he go in, say hi, spend the night? And that's the discussion that uh, that we can have. But clearly, he comes back with after 24 years, and he's the greatest sage of his era, and he has 24,000 students, and the entire town, everyone comes up to meet the greatest sage of, of, of his time, including his father-in-law, Kalba Savua, comes to pay his respects. Now, Kalba Savua, he feels bad that he rejected his daughter, and he wants to uh, undo the vow. And the vow that he disowned his daughter, he feels bad, he shouldn't have done it. He wants to make amends with his daughter. So he says, okay, I'll go to the great rabbi and ask him, you know, is, is there grounds for annulling this this vow? Of course, he has no idea that this is the same shepherd's son-in-law. So he goes to Rabbi Akiva and he asks him this question. He says, well, would you have made the vow against your new son-in-law if you knew that he would become a Torah scholar? You knew you thought he was a good for nothing, but if he was really something or there was something there, then would you have made that advice? He says, well, if he even studied one Mishnah, if he studied one law, I'd be okay with it. He says, okay, Shalom Aleichem, nice to meet you. I'm your son-in-law. And of course, uh, the rest is history. He, uh, he, uh, totally annulled his, uh, his, his vow and, uh, the relationship with his estranged daughter was, was reconstituted. But that's the basic backstory of Rabbi Akiva. Now, the Talmud, the Book of Yovamos, tells us that his 24,000 students died in a plague in the months between, in the month and a half, that is, between Pesach and Shavuot. The month that corresponds to the Sfirat Omer, to the counting of the Omer. Now, now, it's not clear from the Talmud what is the kind of political nature of the time. Now, we know from, from other sources that that was the time in which Hadrian and the Romans were systematically trying to trying to dismantle Judaism. And part of that was their campaign against the rabbis. So some have suggested that this was this plague that killed all the rabbis, all the young students of Rabbi Tiva, was actually the handiwork of the Romans. Uh, the simple reading of the Talmud is they died from a supernatural plague. That the Almighty said these people are not worthy. They are not treating each other with proper respect, with proper honor, and therefore they died from a supernatural disease caused by their lack of respect for each other, lack of mutual, mutual respect. With his 24,000 students decimated and the ranks of the rabbis depleted, the Talmud tells us that Rekiva says, okay, I'm going to find new students. Start from scratch. And he heads south. Apparently he was there in the north, and then he heads south. And he finds five students, and they start rebuilding. And one of the reasons why the period of the Omer is a, a, a mourning period is because these 24,000 students died in this period, and therefore a tremendous amount of, of, of Torah scholars perish in this time, and therefore we mourn and we uh, and we act as uh, people who are grieving by not shaving, by not getting haircuts. We don't do weddings. We don't listen to music during the 33 days until Lagba Omer. Now, why is Lagba Omer significant? There's a few reasons. One is that the students apparently stopped dying on that day. And that was the day that the rebuilding began. 
In addition, it is a day that marks the passing of one of those students, one of those five students, and that's the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So those five students that essentially are the building blocks of the next generation of Torah, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Nechemiah, Manstadish, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, those ones who author those books, one of them is Rabbi Shimon, known as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the, is the founder, so to speak, of, of standardized Kabbalah. He's the one who perpetuated those, those ideas to the next generation. He's also that great builder after that era. I mean, he, of course, taught him, but the ranks are still depleted. The Jews are still being persecuted in, in horrific ways. He himself is wanted by the Romans. He has to hide in a cave for 12, eventually 13 years to wait out the wrath of the Romans. And he was the one who really heralds this rebuilding project. And he was the one who was the no compromises with the Romans attitude. They're a bunch of murderous barbarians, and I'm not going to change my mind, even if it means that I become a wanted man. So he ends up having to escape. He's a wanted man. There's uh, He's in the crosshairs of the Romans. Most people don't survive that. He does it miraculously by ending up in a, in a cave and the Almighty providing them food by having a carob tree sprout up outside his cave and having a, a little a trickle of water in a little stream go by his cave. And that's what he subsists on for 13 years, studying Torah, the hidden Torah, in a hidden location together with his son. The descriptions that we get are very dramatic. They only wore their clothing on Shabbat, only on Shabbat so they were put on their clothing. The rest of the week, they submerged themselves in, in earth, studying Torah like that. How dramatic is that? Of course, there's all kinds of deep mystical meanings, what that uh, portends. But that's Rabbi Shimon. And his death, his yard site, is the 33rd day of the Omer. And that's another reason why the 33rd day of the Omer is so significant. And in fact, there's about a million people that make the annual pilgrimage to Meron. Meron is a mountain in northern Israel, in the Galilee. And that's where Rabbi Shimon is buried. And on the 33rd day of the Omer, there's about a million people that ascend that mountain. It's the wildest place. I've actually never been there. I've never been there on, I was there in Meron on the mountain, but I've never been there, uh, during Lagba Omer. But it's wild. Like the cat, like buses, traffic. Again, this is a land that's been occupied since the Stone Age or maybe even earlier. It's not exactly built for this kind of infrastructure. You know, it doesn't have the infrastructure of, 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 uh, modern cities. And you have a million people, in effect, converging on a small hamlet with a mountain and the gravesite of Rebbe Shimon, it is a logistical nightmare. And it's just a a wild experience from what I've heard. You can watch videos. They like uh, bonfires. There's all kinds of symbolism. But it very much relates to the hidden Torah. And therefore, there's a lot of subtlety going on on Lagba Omer. But we don't get haircuts. We don't uh, shave. We don't... Uh, 
have weddings, we don't celebrate to also mark this sad period. And even though the sad period is punctuated by the very happy rebuilding, we have to acknowledge both the, the, the sadness of the destruction of the era of the students, of the original students of Rabbi Tiva, and then, of course, the tremendous renaissance of the five students that remained or the five student that's the five students that uh, were that were selected so to speak by the almighty almost to be those links that are going to perpetuate Rebekah's Torah the body of oral Torah to the next generation that is also heralded on the 33rd day of the year. but so that's a little bit of the background of Rebekah of course his stature his prominence is everywhere in in uh, in the Talmud in the in the Mishnah. Even though his he himself is not always explicitly named, but like we mentioned last week and like we talked about today, all of his students are the ones who are perpetuating the Torah to that generation. And there's many there's many stories about him as well that also paint a a very noble. A, a, a very a sensitive, aristocratic portrait of uh, of Rabbi Tiva, just as, as a person, as a figure, as a, as a titan of his era. We'll talk about some more of his stories in in the when we try to understand his Mishnah. So this is the first of three, and let's go through what he says again. So he begins with the idea of mockery and levity, of laughter. And, and frolicness are things that accustomize a person to licentiousness. There's a very deep idea here. What he's telling us is that the way sin works is often in a very indirect manner. This is the concept of a slippery slope, meaning that a minor concession can yield to a bigger concession can yield to a bigger concession, which will eventually lead to very terrible things. And therefore, the advice here, don't try to stop sin only when sin is present, but try to understand the genesis of sin. Try to understand how it develops, how the ball gets rolling, and try to stop it from even getting rolling to begin with. That's a much more effective tool against preventing sin. So what he's telling us is that there's a certain funnel. You start at the top and you make your way down to the bottom. And if you just focus on avoiding the bottom, well, then you're going to be facing a lot of resistance, a lot of headwinds. The, 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 the inertia ha- has ended. The, there's now movement. And then now you're trying to stop something that is rumbling towards sin. This is a very deep concept that we see several places in, in, in Jewish literature. So, for example, the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 105b, tells us about someone who does something very unusual. What does the person do? The person gets angry, and they start breaking vessels in their home or tearing their garments. Now, why would anyone ever rip their own garments or break their own stuff? Well, they're angry. Well, so what? You know, you see people throwing stuff at the wall, breaking stuff. Why would someone do that? Interesting thing. Interesting question. Says the Talmud, if you see someone who is ripping their garments in anger or breaking their vessels in anger or taking their money and and setting it on fire during their anger, 
that person, you should view them as if they did idolatry. Now, why would you view that person as doing idolatry? Says, explains the Talmud. This is the craft of the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara is clever. It has a way of doing things. This is its craft. Today, it tells you do this. Tomorrow, it tells you do that. Until it tells you to do idolatry and the person does idolatry. It's an amazingly deep, profound inside the Talmud. The Yitzhahara does not use direct methods most of the time. Especially for someone who is going to be resistant. Yetzirah says, do something so heinous, so, so terrible, you'll say, no, that's not, that's not me. I don't do that. It tries to get you to do one small thing. And once it has you in its grips, you do this, tomorrow it can push it a little bit further. And the next day it pushes you a little bit further. And eventually it says, do idolatry, do the worst thing. And once you're already under its spell, then you're going to do it. And this is, by the way, why the Talmud is essentially encouraging us to not yield an inch. You're the safest when you stand entirely resolutely in opposition to anything the Yetzirah says. No compromises. Nothing. Not yield an inch. Not give a finger. That's the way to survive. That's what it's telling us. Because once you give an inch, you probably give another inch. And once you give another inch, you'll probably give a foot and eventually you give a mile and eventually you'll give up everything. And that's what Rebekiva seems to be telling us. He's like, what is levity? What is being a little bit lightheadedness? What does that have to do with adultery, with promiscuity? What do they have to do with each other? Rebekiva is telling us a very deep point. He says, every sin has its beginning, which could be very innocuous when viewed in isolation. But when in view of the big picture, how did something get off the rails so fast? What's the very first step that allowed that? A certain lowering of your guard. That's what's going to lead to it. So, for example, that's one source that we see in Shabbos 105b. In addition, the Midrash tells us, this is based upon the verse in Numbers. The verse in Numbers is talking about the one that we say uh, during the Shema. You should see the tzitzis, you see the fringes, and you remember all the mitzvahs of God, and you do them, and you will not deviate after your hearts and after your eyes that lead you astray. That's what the verse tells us. Or say, just tell us, what does that mean, the eyes and your heart lead us astray? What that means is, is that the eyes and the heart are the facilitators of sin. The eye sees, the heart desires, and the body sins. Again, we're being shown a progression here. It doesn't just happen instantly. Okay, Yetzirah says sin. Sure, where do I sign? No. He gets a beachhead. He sees something. It takes on a life of its own. It starts to quiver within you. And that eventually, over time, your heart desires. And over time, stage after stage, the, eventually the body will sin. That's the craft of the Sahara. And again, we're trying to stop it very, very early. Similarly, what he's telling us over here at Kiva is that levity and lightheadedness, those are the first steps of promiscuity. Uh, I heard someone uh, say something very fascinating. Uh, a, a halakhic authority made the following statement. I think it's brilliant, and I think it's profound. What are the proper guidelines between coworkers 
of the opposite sex. Everyone knows how common it is for workplace drama uh, or workplace relationships to go too far and to result in, in catastrophe. It happens. So what's the proper guidelines between individuals who work together who are involved, who are involved in common pursuits but are not married to each other and are married to other people? So what I heard from this halakhic authority was that the one person that you're never allowed to call by her first name is your secretary. It's an interesting statement. How many times have we heard the story? Is that, well, you know, Cupid came and just forced it upon us, right? It just came out of nowhere. It just ha- out of nowhere. And here we see like this a sensitivity to say the person that you're most likely to have an affair with, let me say it bluntly, the person you're involved with on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis, an hour-to-hour basis, that person you have to be the most careful about to not allow this to get from the professional realm to the romantic realm. And therefore, an amazing idea that this person you never call by the first name. You call her, you know, I don't know, Mrs. whatever, Smith, right? If you're, if you have an, a, a, a secretary, you have to know this could, this could eventually, God forbid, and it's happened a billion times, it could eventually spiral out of control and ruin everyone's life. And therefore, how do you stop it? Don't say, well, I'm not going to do anything promiscuous with her. That's one way to stop it, but you probably won't win. If you use that strategy, stop it before it gets out of control. What, what does Robert Kiva tell us? Laughter and lightheadedness, being frolicky, being friendly, just being playful in a relationship or in a relationship that cannot progress, you already lost the battle because that's going to segue towards, towards sin. This is an encouragement here to keep a, a very strong barrier between, between between us and the people that we work with and the people that we're involved with to make sure that there's a certain recognition of, of, of barriers that are fixed and, and that are not going to be moved, that are not going to be neglected, that are not going to be abandoned, and that's the way to prevent anything from getting out of control. Now, what is fascinating about this particular statement come from Rabbi Kiva is that some of the more famous stories of Rabbi Kiva in the Talmud involve him laughing. So there's one of them, for example. It tells that Rabbi Kiva, together with two of the preeminent sages of his era, Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariu, by the way, is going to be the author of the Mishnah number 21 in our chapter. They were walking in Judea after the temple was destroyed. And, of course, the Roman legion was still present and they heard it at a great distance. And when the other rabbis hear the, the, the mighty roar of the Roman army, they start crying. And what did Robert Kiva start doing? He starts laughing. And they say to him, why are you laughing? And he says to them, well, well why are you crying? So they say, well, you see these, these, these idolaters, they bow down to figurines, they bow down to bushes, they, they, they offer sacrifices to idolatry and they're sitting secure and they're sitting quietly. And what, what, what about us? Our temple's destroyed and we're not going to cry. 
So what does Rambam say? Oh, well, that's exactly why I'm laughing. You see the negative, I see the positive. I'm going to take an optimistic look on the exact same set of facts that you're t- sad about. If the Almighty gives so much reward to the sinners, well, how much reward is he going to give to the people who do the mitzvahs? That's why when I see them at their peak, it makes me happy to realize just how much more it's going to be good for us. That's what he, that's the first encounter. And then in a different instance, they were ascending to Jerusalem and they got to Mount Stopus. Mount Stopus is a mountain outside of Jerusalem that you can see right into the temple, right? In temple Mount. And when we go there, when you, when you go to, to Jerusalem and you see the, the venue of the, where the temple used to stand, the law states that you have to rip your garments. It's a time of mourning. Because whenever you remember, whenever you remember the fact that the temple is destroyed, it's a time of mourning. So if you ever see people going to the, the hotel, the Western Wall, you'll often see people coming with two shirts. One shirt on top and one shirt on bottom. And the, the reason is because you have to rip your shirt. So you rip your shirt in mourning and then you have another shirt on top of it that you could have to look like a normal person. In fact, when I went to, when I went to Jerusalem a couple of years ago, I decided to only go to the Kotel on Friday night for Shabbat. So the law states if you go to the temple on Shabbat, the temple area, the temple region on Shabbat, you don't need to rip your, your garments. We don't mourn on Shabbat. So when I went in the end of uh, 2017, I went there for Friday night uh, prayer at, at the Kotel. I didn't rip my garment. Whereas a few months later when I had to go in for a wedding, so there's there's loopholes. What you could do is you could say, okay, I'm going to go with my friend and I'm going to transfer ownership of my shirt to my friend and therefore I, I, I have to rip my shirt but I don't have to rip my friend's shirt. Well, my friend own my sh- owns my shirt now and therefore I can't rip it. The, the, the arena of loopholes is almost unlimited. So I was thinking, you know what? I, fi- I should find someone to come with me so I could transfer ownership of my shirt to them. And I'm like, no, isn't the whole point to take the lesson? So I, I put on an extra shirt and I ripped it. What I did was, the problem was, how do you rip a shirt? These shirts are built yeah. pretty. What I did is I took my uh, collar stay and you just puncture a hole from the back side okay. and then you just use it to rip it. Okay. No, no big deal. I have more of these white shirts where they, where that one came from. So uh, when I uh, when I'm going back, uh, my my brother Mordechai is going to get married. Bezrat Hashem, please God, in July in Jerusalem. So I'm planning a trip there as well. Hopefully, I go with uh, with Chaya and the baby. So when I go to the Kotel, Bezrat Hashem, please God, I'm going to rip my shirt again. And maybe I'll send everyone pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's that. So they get to Mount Stopus, and everyone rips their garments. And what do they do? They continue walking, and Temple Mount is barren. It's a pile of rubble. Uh, the Romans, of course, tried to do everything they can to make the Jewish people feel their misery. And as they get closer, they see something so sacrilegious, it causes them to erupt in tears. They see in the exact location where the Holy of Holies was, the epicenter of holiness in the world, the holiest place in the world, they see a fox strutting out of that location. And they start crying. 
And of course, they start crying. And what does Rabbi Kiva do? He starts laughing. And they say to him, why are you laughing? He says, well, why are you crying? So they say to him, this is the place that the Torah tells us that if a non-Kohen Gadol enters, they die. So even if the, even a regular Kohen, even a regular, the, holy, the holiest person in the world who's not a Kohen Gadol walks in there, they're dead. And now there's rodents, there's there's animals run, running through. How can we not cry? So Rabbi Kiva responds with a very intricate answer. But the bottom line is, is that he proves from Scripture, and in a way, if you just, if you just, only, the only piece of Talmud that you saw is this one, you'd be like, my goodness, these people are brilliant. He takes one verse here, and he takes a second verse there, and he takes a third verse there, and he makes this entire soup of questions, and eventually comes up with a proof. Like, what's the kind of, why is this, why is this prophet over here, and why is that prophet over there, and why are they mixed together? So he brings one quote from this prophet, and one quote from that prophet. A very intricate proof, but essentially he says, the Torah promises two things. It promises the temple will be destroyed, but it also promises the temple will be rebuilt. And now that I know that the first half of the prophecy came true, I can be assured that the second half of the prophecy will come true as well. And that's why I'm happy. That's why I'm optimistic. And you know, I know what his comrades told him in a famous, uh, famous, uh, uh response. They said to him, Ativa Nechamtanu, Ativa Nechamtanu, Rabbi Ativa, you have consoled us. You, you've shown us the positivity, the, the, the optimism that is feasible in such a sad situation. That's one story of Arutiva laughing. One of the most famous stories about Arutiva. The second story about Arutiva laughing, I guess will be the third story, is at the time that the great sage Rabbi Eliezer was on his deathbed. So Rabbi Eliezer's on his deathbed. And his students, who are the preeminent sages of the next, generation. They come to visit him. And he's in tremendous pain. And he's suffering from his illness. And he makes an announcement. He says, the Almighty's angry at the world because he's treating me like this. That's what Rebbe Ezra says. And everyone starts crying. With the exception of Rabbi Akiva. He starts laughing. And they say to him, Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? And he says to them, well, why are you crying? And they say to him, well, look, Rabbi Eliezer here, he's a veritable Torah scroll and he's in pain. How could we not cry? He says, oh, that's exactly why I'm laughing because Rabbi Rabbi Eliezer is in in pain. Why would you be laughing if Rabbi Eliezer is in pain? He says to them, well, my whole life I'm observing our great teacher, Rabbi Eliezer. And he's very wealthy. Remember the story of him being the landowner? He's very wealthy. And I worked for him for three years. And I know that everything he touches turns to gold. And he's he's had an incredible life. His wine never spoiled. His flax never got damaged. His oil never spoiled. His honey never spoiled. All of his produce, everything that he did was always successful. And I was worried Maybe our great sage, our great teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, because he had such an easy life, such a fruitful life, maybe he earned all his reward for Olam Abba here. Maybe in Olam Abba, he's going to be punished for his sins. He never got anything bad over here that would exhaust his punishment. And now that I see that he's suffering, I know that his Olam Abba is complete, is untainted, is undiminished, because he got any punishment for any sins that he has over here. That's what he tells his friends. And Rabbi Eliezer overhears this. He says, wait a minute. Are you implying that I have sins? 
So Rakiv responds to him, well, you yourself taught us. There is no tzad, there's no righteous person in the world who does good and doesn't sin. And therefore, you must have done something. And now, it's, it's good, so to speak, that you're being able to, to pay up those debts, so to speak. You're able to cleanse yourself from those sins by getting a little bit of punishment before you die. And that way you know that for eternity, Omaba, your reward will be undiminished. So it's interesting. I found it just fascinating. Rabbi Tiva, who is known, three stories in the Talmud, for always laughing, he was the one who tells us, don't laugh. Laughter is a segue for promiscuity. But I think the point is, Rabbi Tiva's not telling us to be somber, morose, to be wallowing in melancholy. It's not what he's telling us. He's telling us, schok v'kalas rosh. Laughter mixed with levity, mixed with lightheadedness. If someone has laughter mixed with seriousness, that's the ideal. Someone's positive, optimistic, but but still serious. The toxic combination is laughter mixed with lightheadedness, jocularity, and levity when you're not serious, and then you're also free free flowing. That's the toxic combination. But for someone to be positive, that's that's a feature. That's a that's an asset. That's a good thing. But in certain instances, it can be very harmful. It can be very fatal. That's what you need to avoid. That's the first lesson. A very powerful lesson about the 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 architecture of sin. Sin doesn't just happen. Oh, here's the sin. Oh, why do we do it? That's not how it works. It starts off very innocuous, very innocently. Being laughter, Robert Hugh himself was laughing, laughing, being optimistic, being friendly, being cheerful, being a little bit lightheaded. But that, of course, can get the ball rolling and the dominoes eventually will fall in sin. And we have to be aware of that and we should guard ourselves from ever allowing that to get started in a way that could, uh, God forbid, result in a catastrophe. That's the first lesson that he teaches us. The next lesson is about the importance of misora, the importance of tradition, the importance of having this vital link of oral Torah transmitted from teacher to, to, to student, generation to generation. That's a way to preserve Torah itself. There's a story in the Talmud about Rabbi Tiva debating with a heretic. And the heretic said, uh, oral Torah is a bunch of malarkey. So he said to him, okay, let's, let's go study. So he says, okay, well, let me teach you the ABCs, the Aleph Bet. So he does Aleph Bet, Gimel Dalet. He teaches him the first four letters, enough to work on. Go study it, go do your homework. Come back tomorrow, we'll do lesson two. Okay, so tomorrow I'll come back for his next, his next lesson. Next, next day, he was like, okay, we're going to do a, uh, we're going to review what we learned yesterday. Okay, let's do it. So he does A, C, D, B. He switches the order. So the guy notices, he's like, wait a minute, didn't we do it differently yesterday? Aha! You can't even know how to read without tradition. How do you expect to know all of Torah without tradition? Just even how to pronounce the letters, how the letters are written, what the order of the letters are, all that is dependent upon what we learned from your, from, from your previous generations, from your antecedents, from your teachers. We need it, it's so vital and it is the preservative of, of Torah. Now, many of the commentaries explain that the word, uh, that the specific 
insinuation here of mesores, of, of tradition, is relating to the extra letters in the Torah. Now, what does that mean? It's a very confusing thing if you don't read Hebrew. But Hebrew is a combination of consonants and vowels, just like English is. The difference is, is that the consonants are written in the form of letters. The vowels are unwritten in the form of nikudot, which are dots and dashes above and below the letter, which is confusing if you don't read Hebrew, but if you read Hebrew, you know exactly what I'm talking about. However, there are exceptions to this. There are times when letters are actually included in the word in place of vowels. So sometimes you have the same word spelled this way and spelled differently. It's pronounced the same way. The difference is is that in one, the vowels are invisible in the form of nikudot. And in a second, the vowels are visible in the form of a letter. So again, very advanced. But when you read the Torah... Sometimes there's nuance thrown in by, hey, a letter is added, a letter is, letter is subtracted, i.e., the vowel is written, the vowel is not written, to teach another lesson. So, for example, just off the top of my head, remember that when it talks about the Nesim, the, the princes of, of Israel, it deducts a letter. And Rashi says, why does it deduct a letter by, by talking about the Nesim, by talking about the princes? Because they didn't donate. They weren't generous in their donation, and therefore the Torah gives them criticism by pulling off a letter. Well, how do you pull off a letter and write the same word? The answer is, is that you pull off a letter and you supplant, uh, you supplement, you supplant a, it with a, with a, an invisible nikudot, right? With the, 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 the hidden, hidden vowels. But again, it shows that the, the, the reason why the Torah chose some words to write, to be written like this and some words to be written like that, that's already going back to, to the times of, of, of Moses, the times of, of Sinai. And it's very important for us to not mix these things up, because even though you have a Torah that's written, every word is precise, but it's an invalid Torah scroll, because the way certain words are spelled are different here and there. So if you swap them, you, 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 word, you write the word na'ara, for example, which means a young girl. Sometimes it's spelled nun, ein, resh, and then the a uh sound is in the form of a kamatz on the bottom of the resh, na'ara. And sometimes it's spelled na'ara, nun ein resh, hey, and that last letter, hey, that's the vowel. And sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like that. And the Talmud says, why is it written like this, like over here? And why is it written like that over there? That's the Talmud trying to reveal to us what the, what the inside is. But if you write a Torah scroll and you write it na'ara without the hey when the hey is supposed to be there or vice versa, you've just invalidated a Torah scroll. And here, that's why it's so important. How do you maintain the 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 integrity of the Torah scroll, you have to have the Masar, you have to have the tradition, you got to make sure that you do a, a, a proper job of of copying the Torah scrolls in a, in a way that's not going to allow any errors to creep in. Now, incidentally, the Yemenite Torah scrolls are different in nine letters. There's 304,805 letters in the Torah scroll. Nine letters, by any account is a very infinitesimally small proportion of the letters of a Torah scroll. That said, it's still different by that amount. But every single one of those letters that are different between our Torah scrolls and the Ammonite Torah scrolls is either we add a letter in the, va- in the form of a vowel, we, they, or we subtract a letter in the form of a vowel, and that's where those discrepancies crept in. Who's right? That's a debate. We think we're right. We're pretty sure we're right, actually. 
Um, but the uh, and because the Yemenites they were they were separated from the rest of the Jewish people for hundreds of thousands of years, and they perpetuated the Torah scrolls with you know in a much smaller group, which is potentially more likely to allow for for inaccuracies to creep in. Again, inaccuracies that from a big picture. Uh, the, the the words are all identical, but the way the spelling, the precise spelling is 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 different. So there's an interesting uh, statement here from the Rabbeinu Yonah. The Rabbeinu Yonah says that if you look at a Talmud text, Talmud text today we have the Talmud text which has been corrected, so to speak. Again, for thousands of years or more than uh, more than a thousand years, every copy of Talmud had to be written by hand. But because it's not as sacrosanct as the written Torah itself, there are some times where one word is different in this version versus that version. So, for example, the Gona Vilna, one of his great efforts was to standardize the text of the Talmud and to find all the manuscripts and try to figure out which one is the more accurate one. But if you'll notice, in a modern page of Talmud, sometimes on the, on the side you have like in every page of one or two letters that are added, that are subtracted, just to 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 make sure that the 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 correction, the text is accurate. So Rabbi Yona here talks about it. He gives like commentary about the fact that the written Torah, well, it's all precise, whereas the Talmud it's less precise because there's some slight variations, deviations in the text. And then he tells us, well, how do you study Talmud? He's, he's, he's giving criticism here. Why are there these, these disparate texts, texts of the Talmud? The reason is because people don't know how to study Talmud. They don't understand something. They say, ah, must mean there was some sort of mistake in the text. Let me amend that and that'll make sense to me. No, that's not what you need to do. You have to understand that to take the text that you have, that's the correct text most likely. And try to understand it, break your head, because it's written in a very dense way and in a very succinct way. And sometimes the nuance is hidden in the obscurity. And don't try to just make it easy by, by, because you make it easy, but you're missing the point, which I think is a very valuable lesson for us. Sometimes you study Talmud and I would say Torah more broadly and something just doesn't make sense to you initially. That's by design because it's very deep. And the point, and it's written with tremendous precision, it's written by people that are the most brilliant people that have ever graced this earth, and it has been honed, and it's been studied by the greatest minds to ever be here, and this is it, and you have to dedicate your time and your effort, pouring over it, plumbing into it, to really kind of get it. And that's, and that's, and that's the design. An interesting commentary that we see. Not to just say, oh, the, the book, they, they just missed it. They, uh, and I think, again, it's, it applies to Torah more broadly. Obviously, they don't get it. No, they get it. The Torah gets it. The sages of the Talmud, they get it. You have to figure out what the message is, and the onus is on you. They did a lot more work here uh, than you did. Don't just say, oh, this Talmud is not right. Let me just switch the – what's called move on. Uh, you're, you're missing the point. That's not how you study. Okay, so that's the first um, – that's the second uh, teaching here, that Mesorah tradition is the safeguard for Torah. What is the safeguard for wealth? There's two kind, there's two portions about becoming wealthy. There's becoming wealthy and there's staying wealthy. How do you make sure that you stay wealthy? He tells us this is the solution to stay wealthy. It's to give charity to tithe. And of course, all of the commentaries 
quote the Talmud in the book of Tainus, the book of Ta'anit, page 9a, where the following exchange happened. A great sage, Rabbi Yochanan, met a young boy. Now, what do they talk about? So today, when you meet someone that you don't know, you always talk about the weather. In Judaism, and certainly in Jewish tradition, in Jewish, in Jew, in Jewish culture, the pastime is Torah. So there's many times in the, in the Talmud, it records a rabbi, meaning a young, a young student, and they say, okay, well, what are you studying? And this still happens today. What are you studying? Let's talk about that. That's the Jewish pastime. That's what we talk about when there's nothing else to talk about. So he meets this young boy, and he says, well, what are you studying? Well, I'm studying a verse. What does the verse say? Aser to aser. Even if you don't know anything about Hebrew, you could hear that that sounds repetitive, right? Aser to aser. So what does this mean? Says the young man. I'll tell you what it means. Aser, give 10% of your money to charity. Bishvil shetita share. So you become wealthy. And the rabbi's like, wait a minute. Are you saying we're doing a mitzvah to become wealthy? Aren't we not supposed to do that? We're supposed to do the mitzvahs because the Mayas says do it? Why are you, what are you telling me this? Should, we're not allowed to test God. He says, no. This, and he brings a proof from the verse, this is the one exception where you're allowed to test God. Give 10% of the money to charity. He'll make you wealthy. Test him. You can't test him elsewhere. Here you could test him. You can't say, oh, I'm going to desecrate Shabbos. And if the Almighty has power, let him come and stop me. That's, that we don't do. Here, this is the exception. Give charity, 10% money to charity, test him. See if he's good for his money. He's promising, give charity, you'll become wealthy. Test him. That's the conclusion of the, of the Talmud. So all the commentaries say, we see here there's a connection between wealth, becoming wealthy, and staying wealthy that is found in, in tithing and, of course, in, in charity. And there's a very long essay here by Rabbeinu Yonah, where he talks all about this and he says, this is what makes you rich. Trust God. You won't regret it. Don't think that, oh, I'm going to give, I give a huge amount of money. It's only 9%. But in absolute terms, it's a lot. Says Rabbi Yona, if you have someone who makes $100 a year and gives $10, $10, and if someone who makes $100 million a year and gives $9 million in charity, the first guy did his job. The second guy didn't give a job. The difference is, of course, one person gives $10. And one person gives $9 million. Who did the bit of bigger mitzvah? So by, by our view, it's like, well, this guy gave $9 million. Such generosity. But he tells us the Torah's view is not like that. This person did his mitzvah. This person does not do his mitzvah. Absolute numbers notwithstanding. There was a an amazing exchange between Rabbi Aaron Leib Steinman, who was, who just passed away a couple of years ago at the age of, uh, I think it was last year, at the age of 103. And he was the the recognized head of the uh, of the yeshiva community in in Israel. I was actually in his house. I was in his house once. Amazing figure. Someone who was 100 years old, 102 years old, mind as sharp as a tack, and being worried about the entire world, making sure everyone's taken care of. Amazing thing. And I, like his house was the most sparsely furnished house I've ever been. It was painted once, I think in 1940. He was someone who lived with tremendous 
abstinence, with tremendous uh, uh, re- removing himself from any sort of physical. Inv- he he would even he he didn't even have like he never like lay down. He would like sit all the time. He uh, you see pictures of him. He like looks very gaunt, but just someone who was very happy. Anyone he met, it's just an amazing thing. I remember his bathroom. Like I walked in there. I, it's hard to get an audience, but I got an audience there. I never seen anything like it. You know, in 1945, I think he came after the war. He came to Israel, and the Jewish agency provided him a mattress, like a thin mattress for the refugees. That was the mattress he used his whole life. And just someone who like was living in the spiritual world entirely. But anyhow, there was an American, uh, a wealthy American, who who was supporting the yeshiva world in, in Israel. And it's amazing how many yeshivas there are. And how many people that are studying Torah? So like a, there has been a boom that happened after the Holocaust uh, of rebuilding Torah in the United States and, and in Israel, and of course on the podcasts online. But this this wealthy man says, "Listen, you know, every day I get people coming. They're asking for more and more money. How many yeshivas can we have? How many yeshivas is enough? Why are they always opening new ones? Why are they always growing?" So the rabbi responded to him, "Well, how many millionaires is enough?" How many millionaires is enough? He says, you don't get it. The reason why the Almighty gave the Jewish people so much money is because they're supporting so much Torah. You want to withdraw your support to Torah, do it at your own peril. Because the reason why you're a millionaire is because you support the yeshiva, not vice versa. Just an amazing uh, insight. But again, this is uh, this is uh, an important insight uh, uh, that should encourage us, uh, should not dissuade us from, from being generous because we know ultimately – it's going to be a good cause, of course, but it's also going to have a kickback for us. We're not going to lose out. And by the way, I've never met anyone. I've never met anyone. And I, I, I ask this question often, who regretted their support of, of Torah causes. I've never read it. I've never, never, never met such a person. It's like, oh, I gave that much out last year and I regret it. Never happened. Uh, and that's another, a nice, a nice little thing. And, um, uh, we appreciate everyone's uh, support that they give to uh, to Torch, and this is not an appeal, <laughs> but uh, just uh, it's something that uh, that I that I find very encouraging to see the people you know Jewish people everywhere uh, are very generous and they really they really adopt this teaching of Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so the next uh, idea that we see here is that vows are a protective fence. For abstinence. So abstinence is a controversial subject here, and vows are as well, because abstinence is typically not a uh, an encouraged attitude, an encouraged philosophy. The Torah gives us a lot of things that are prohibited, and we're not encouraged to add more. There's enough things that the Torah prohibits, we don't need to add any more of our own. That's the, the, the attitude that we see in the Talmud. It's enough what the Torah prohibited. We don't need to make any more any more things. Nevertheless, there is at least a philosophical approach or philosophical attitude that we should not be too hyper-focused on things of material and physical pursuits. We should be focused on the spiritual pursuits. That really should be the, the guiding force of our agenda. And here we see... That if someone wants to adopt that more ascetic lifestyle, there is a way to supercharge that with a vow. And again, there's another long essay here from Beniona. I don't want to go through it in, entirely. But he says, ideally, vows should be avoided. Because a vow is something that you don't 
need to do. You don't, you shouldn't do it if you could avoid it. That said, it's a last resort. If you need it, if you need to rein in hedonism, if you need to rein in gluttony, if you need to rein in immersion in the physical world alone, sometimes you could choose abstinence, go the opposite direction, and you solidify it, you cement it with a vow. And the way I look at this is, you know, like it's like creating skin in the game. When you have a vow, you're creating a new Torah law that hitherto did not exist. If you say a vow, I make a vow to to not eat lunch before four o'clock. You're trying to get control of your eating, right? You're eating too much, right? You eat a huge lunch and then you have to fall asleep in the afternoon. So, and you feel like it's really hindering your life. And the whole morning you think about lunch, the whole afternoon you're trying to recover from it. So what do you do? You try to stop it. You can't. You can't. You try to choose abstinence. I'm just going to skip lunch entirely. doesn't work. Your willpower is not enough. Maybe under such circumstances, if it's so important, you take your willpower and you amplify it by a vow. People are very hesitant of transgressing vows. It's one of the most severe things. And therefore, you're, you're kind of adding fuel to your to your desire for abstinence by making it bulletproof, so to speak, with a vow. I I think maybe a, a modern application of this is creating a fine system. My grandfather's teacher, he quoted from his grandfather's his teacher, Rabbi Yochum Lovavetz, he used to say like this, every day I have to overcome my whims five times. Every day I have to overcome your whims five times. And if I don't do five times, for every time I don't do, I got to pay a fine. So why do you make that fine system? Uh, fine means I'll give the money to charity. The answer is, is that you do want to develop your self-control. You do want to become someone who's able to overcome your whims. You're not just being led like a, like a, like a puppet by your desires, by your Yitzhahara. But the problem is, is that just that desire alone, it doesn't have context. It doesn't have framework. So what you do is you add just a little, little incentive, so to speak, to, to supplement your desire for that, and that is a way to, uh, to achieve that. And I think, you know, today, probably people suffer a lot with, um, you know, too many devices. They want to get work done, but my goodness, this Netflix show is so bingeable, right? Or, uh, whatever, whatever it is, you know, I just can't get off Facebook. Can't get off, I'm addicted. Okay, well, there's a problem here. Your life is not progressing. Or it's not, you're not achieving what you, you should and you could because of these problems. Well, how do you solve it? Ah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get rid of it. Is that gonna work? Willpower enough, it's very hard to muster enough of that to actually overcome. Here might be a solution. Ah, put some skin in the game. Say, okay, for, you could watch Netflix, no problem, but every minute is a dollar fine. And then you, you're just trying to balance the scale, right? You're just trying to add some firepower, some oomph to the side that's fighting the HRA and say, okay, I can watch this show, but it means I have to give $70 to charity. Okay, maybe you'll do it. But again, you'll, you'll, you'll have more, more control. You have more agency on determining what you do. That's what he's advising us. Again, this is a, a, a um, sophisticated approach to combating a sophisticated adversary in the Yetzirah, which is, I guess, in line with a lot of the things that he's telling us here. 
And finally, he tells us that the way to preserve our wisdom is via silence. I, we've all been there where people don't stop for a second to absorb, to listen, to understand where the other side is coming from. And that's not a way to to develop new insights, to, to develop new ideas. The best way to do it is to be silent and to absorb and to listen. It doesn't mean to be a pushover. It doesn't mean to be meek. It doesn't mean to be bashful. But it means to listen. And to listen and to absorb. If you listen, if you absorb, you'll learn. If you're always talking, if you're always babbling, then it's quite likely that you'll never learn new things. You're always sharing your perspective. You never hear someone else's perspective. You're not learning from other people. And like we'll see later on in Perkevos, the way to learn, the way to become wise is to learn from every person. If I'm always talking, 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 I'm always chattering, I'm always yammering, I'm always tweeting, literally and figuratively, how can I ever learn? Uh, what do they say? Keep quiet. I don't remember how this line goes, but keep quiet and let other people think of you as a fool. It's better to do that than to open up your mouth and remove all doubt. That's a good aphorism uh, for this idea to listen, to learn. If you learn, you will become wiser. That's tried and true. If you just talk, you probably won't learn that much.